So we've uh, been continuing our series. We call it Learning to Love God's Word. Just kind of looking each week at a different book of Scripture. It's going to take us three years to finish this, right? Because we're just going to do it a few weeks at a time. And so the past three weeks we looked at some uh, books from the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And uh, for the next four weeks we're going to shift to the New Testament. Looking at the book of Acts today. And then three letters written by the Apostle Paul over the next three weeks, Romans and First and Second Corinthians. And so Lilic is going to read for us a snapshot from Acts chapter 26 that captures several of the reasons for which God has given us this part of his word. And uh, if you haven't picked up on the theme already through our worship service, here's a hint. A lot of it has to do with darkness and light. And how Jesus reaches into our world, pushes back the darkness and rescues us and brings us into the light. Let's listen as we hear how Jesus reaches down and rescues a man named Saul. Thank you, Lily. The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 11 through 20. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them, followers of Jesus, punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I ask, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to support you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So 
So, you got to really want it. You got to really want to see the sunrise if you're going to go to the top of a mountain to see it. Uh, this week, Trisha texted me and our kids this beautiful picture at, uh, I don't know, around 8 a.m. Um, of the sunrise. She's standing on the top of Stone Mountain. And uh, off in the distance, you see this glorious sunrise. Light breaking through the clouds, piercing the darkness. But you've got to really want it, right? You've got to really want it to, um, to make that effort. And if you want it that much, and oftentimes when we talk about really wanting it, we use the language of love. That, that's what love means. When you really want it this much. If, if, if you love seeing a sunrise that much, you want to take a picture of it and send it out to other people because you want them to love it also. That's how it works. And if you really want it that much, you push through the hard parts of the climb. If you haven't ever hiked up Stone Mountain, let me give you a secret, right? It just gets steeper the further you go. And there's this place where you get, and you're like, that's got to be it. This, it can't get any steeper, or I will have to roll down this thing. And then you come around a bend in the trees, and you're like, it just got steeper. But if you want it, you'll push through the hard parts, because you love it that much, and it's worth that much to you. And if you don't want it, you're just going to stay in the parking lot, right? All those arguments down in the parking lot, they sound very convincing if you don't want it that much. You know, the sun will rise again tomorrow. I'll just do it tomorrow. You know, um, you can go on the internet and see pictures of this thing. Uh, you know, what's the big deal with a sunrise anyway? It's just a star being a star, and we're the ones who've made up the myth about how special and beautiful a sunrise is. It's just the universe happening. So why don't we just go get back in the bed? Because I don't really want it that much. If you don't really want it, all those arguments down in the parking lot, they sound very convincing because you don't love it. So this morning in town, (laughs) that's how it is with Jesus. And this is my goal for us today, right? Just to give you reasons to love Jesus. Because I want you, I want you to not be convinced when you're standing in the parking lot and you hear that Jesus is just a myth and religion is just human beings being human beings and there's not really anything special to see after all. And and I want you in town to to, to want him enough to to walk through the hard parts. For crying out loud, we're talking about the persecuted church today. We just read a passage from Acts chapter 26 that talks about the reality from the earliest days of the church of of people giving a really hard time to believers in Jesus. And if do you love Jesus enough that you would endure a hard time because of loving him? 
I want you to be ready to walk up the steep parts of the mountain. And the only thing that will do that is if you really want him, if you really love him. This is why the book of Acts is is a gift from the Holy Spirit to the church. So that we will learn to love him enough to get out of the parking lot and, and overcome those doubts that would try to explain Jesus away and to push through the hard parts so that our love for Jesus would actually make us want other people in other places to love him too. The book of Acts is here because because Jesus wants us to love him. He wants to give us solid reasons that will convince skeptical minds and hearts to leave the parking lot and follow him. He wants to give us reasons to love him, reasons that are compelling enough that we would want to serve him in radical ways, even if it brings hardship into our lives. And he wants us to have good reasons to love him so that more and more people we know here and around the world would learn to love him along with us. It's a pretty tall order. Let's stop and pray that God will give us those kinds of reasons for loving his son today. Lord, you are calling us as you were calling the church in the first century when the book of Acts was first written down to love you and to love you so much that we would gladly be weak for you, that we would gladly endure hardship for you, that some of us would even risk our lives and perhaps even lay our lives down for you. You are calling us to do radical things like give away our time and give away our money and give away many of our freedoms to follow you and to do that in such a way that people around the world, that that the nations would be glad because of you. Change us, Lord Jesus. Give us the kind of love that will push us through the hard parts and make us eager to follow and serve and obey you, whatever you may ask and wherever you might lead, because we love you and we want it that much. Do that for us by your power, we ask. Amen. So, I just want to show you four pictures, right? Four pictures that would make you want it. Four pictures from the top of the mountain. They say, this is what Jesus is like. This is why we would love him enough that we want other people around the world, other people across the street, other people we work beside and students we study beside and people we shop beside and play beside and why we would want people all over the world to love Jesus. Four Four pictures from the top of the mountain. Here's the first one. Jesus rises from the dead to shatter misery and death. That's one of the reasons we love him. We're going to use the story of Jesus coming into 
the world of this man named Saul. Now, I'm going to stop calling him Saul and start calling him Paul right now, right? Because um, as you read the book of Acts, he sort of undergoes this name change, stops using his Hebrew name and starts using his Roman name as an indicator that his whole life has changed when he met Jesus. And some of you are going to go, how could we use the story of an apostle to uh, say anything to us? Because we're not apostles. We're not called to sort of single-handedly take this good news about Jesus to multiple nations. No, but we are all called to be transformed by Jesus. And we are all called to be passionate about other people learning to love Jesus. Whether we're on the front lines personally doing that or whether we have another role, we're all called to be part of this people who love Jesus so much that we want to send the picture of him to other people we love so that they will learn to love him with us. That's our calling. We may not see Jesus with our own eyes resurrected in glory like Paul did in Acts chapter 26. But we are called to take seriously the truth of Jesus' resurrection. So yeah, we're going to use his story to speak into our lives. One of the first reasons we have and one of the first reasons Paul had to love Jesus is this truth that Jesus rises from the dead to shatter misery and death. Now one thing you need to notice is that Paul had been wanting that to happen for a long time. Paul was a Pharisee. Not all ancient Jewish people believed that God would one day end death that he would one day resurrect his people from the grave and give them life that would never end. There was a group called the Sadducees who were very influential in the time of Jesus. They thought that was just a myth, just a fable. That's never going to happen. You know, enjoy life while you can. God's good to you here and now because this is it. And then there was a group called the Pharisees who studied the Old Testament and said, you know what? God makes all these promises to people that never get fulfilled before they die. So if God's going to keep those promises, there's got to be more life. And in some passages like Daniel chapter 12, God actually promises that he's going to raise his people to enjoy everlasting life. Not as angels floating on a cloud, but as real people with flesh and bone and blood and guts. And, and we might, I might get to learn to rock climb when Jesus comes back. I'm not going to try it till then. I'm too, too much of a coward, right? I'll stick with bouldering. Bouldering is rock climbing for weenies, right? It's, you don't get any higher than, than you can safely jump down. That's my... You get to have a body forever because all sickness and disease and all the sorrow and the tears that come after death are just gone forever. Paul actually had been longing for that. He's standing before a king named King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II to be precise. And he's telling Agrippa, hey, here's why I've been arrested in the temple, and here's why I'm going to be put on trial when you guys ship me off to Rome. Because I believe 
in the hope of our fathers. In Acts chapter 26, earlier than our reading, Paul says this, verse 6, It is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. He's talking about his hope in the resurrection. So here's Paul saying, For a long, long time I have longed to see the pain and misery of this world pulled, pushed back, overturned. I have longed to live in a world where there were no more tears. I've longed, I've longed to be with loved ones who have died and gone. I've longed to be reunited. We're hoping for that. We're longing for it. We're not looking for it in Jesus. Before he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, Paul told us in his own words what he was like, right? I wanted to persecute and destroy this movement of people who worship Jesus. Yes, I'm longing for misery and death to be overturned, but I am not looking to that man to do it. I'm looking to God to do it. And this guy died on a cross, so he's nothing more than a human being and a cursed human being at that. So imagine with that mindset, you're walking along this road to Damascus. I know you've seen a famous picture that shows Paul knocked off his horse by this blinding light. Okay, look, no horse, right? Scripture doesn't say anything about a horse. Makes for a good painting, but um, that's a little added detail of, of Christian tradition. Paul's on the road to Damascus. Why is he going there? He told us, I'm going there to get these people to blaspheme. I'm going there to make them curse the name of Jesus. I'm going there to, to initiate church discipline against these people. I'm going to haul them up in front of their local synagogue court, assembled to mete out punishment, and I'm going to say, these guys are guilty of worshiping a human being instead of God. And the synagogue court will have no choice but to agree. And I've got permission from the high priest to do this. And remember Paul tells us where he went to do this? He went to foreign countries, foreign cities to do this. Paul is kicking people while they're down, okay? He's already done this in synagogues in and around Jerusalem and in Judea. And, and so the synagogues have passed judgment. And the synagogue can't kill anybody, right? The Romans won't go for that. The Romans hold the power of, of uh, execution in the ancient world. Now, if a mob gets a little out of control, well, maybe nobody will say anything about it. So, um, yeah, likely many of these people died through mob violence. But the leaders of the synagogue could wash their hands and say, no, no, we, we didn't cast the sentence of death. We cast the greatest sentence we could, which is exile. You have to leave our synagogue, which means you got to leave our city. So Paul is traveling to those other cities and saying, yeah, I've done this to you once. I'm going to do it again until you just quit. He's walking to Damascus, hoping, longing for death to be turned over one day, to be undone. 
and thinking that Jesus has nothing to do with that. And then suddenly, light, (coughs) blinding light. The text says, light brighter than the sun. And he hears a voice. And he asks a question. Who are you, master? I don't know who you are yet, but clearly you're not an ordinary human being. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know what that means? That means one person has already pushed back death. This man I thought was dead is not dead. This man I thought could not be alive anymore is alive. And he's not just mystically alive. He's not just sort of symbolically alive. He is voice enough to speak in the Hebrew tongue to me. Alive. He has lips and he has lungs. And when he pushes air out of those lungs, his vocal cords vibrate. And I get to hear him call my name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A dead man is living. And that's what I've been longing for for my whole life is for death and misery to be overturned. I just had no idea that this man was something more than a man. That's why we love Jesus, because he overturns death and misery. Because he comes into a world and he says, you know what, Paul, I don't want people to have to be afraid that when you show up with your feet all dusty from Damascus Road dirt, that you're going to rip them out of their lives and out of their homes and make them flee somewhere else. I don't want another Stephen the first Christian martyr, to die. I don't want innocent blood to be shed. I want a world where the innocent are no longer persecuted by the powerful. I want a world where there's no more dying and no more weeping and no more grieving. I want that world and I rose again to shatter the power of darkness and death and misery. If you don't believe that Jesus is alive today, I want to say to you, you're in pretty good company. There are a lot of people throughout the history of the world who have believed Jesus is still dead and he didn't rise again. I want to challenge you. You've got a couple of things to explain. You're going to have to explain why Paul, this uber-persecutor of the church, passionate, zealous to see this movement destroyed, why did he suddenly become one who risked destruction himself? What what kind of event in his life could explain that change? Maybe the event he says repeatedly caused the change. Maybe he met the resurrected Jesus. You've also got one other thing to explain. And and that is, why would he have chosen to tell a story about the resurrected Jesus if he were making something up? If he just wanted to change his life, if he was just sort of feeling bad about being a persecutor, and he says, you know, I just, I kind of want to switch teams. 
you know, I'm like, uh, Clemson's probably not going to win this year. So can I be an Alabama fan this year? Like, I don't want to be on the losing side. I want to be, can, I'm just, can I switch sides in the middle? And, okay, make up a story to explain that. Oh, yeah, resurrected guy. Because you know what? Everybody in my world is going to buy that explanation. A few verses later, one of the guys hearing this speech says, Paul, have you gone crazy? Are you mad? Like in the first century, when you talked about people rising from the dead, people said what they say in the 21st century. Are you mad? That doesn't happen. How could a rational person believe this? And Paul would say, I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm just telling you what's real. This happened. See, Roman people didn't believe the, the body was important, so they didn't talk about resurrection of the body at all. Jewish people believed that when the resurrection came, all people would be raised together at once. So this category of one person rising by himself doesn't fit anywhere in anybody's paradigm. Why would Paul make up a story that fits nobody's paradigm in order to change his life from being the hunter to become the hunted? I would submit to you that the best explanation for those facts is that Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus. Jesus rose again to shatter the power of death and misery, and that's why we love him. And that's why we love him. It's one reason. Here's another picture from the top of the mountain. Why do we love Jesus? We love him because he suffered God's condemnation to pay for all the ways that our passions get misdirected. Paul has a lot of thinking to do in an instant. If he meets someone he thought was dead who turns out actually to be alive... Now he's got to explain something else. He's going to say, wait a minute. I I thought that Jesus died under God's condemnation. That Jesus died as, as someone who had insulted the name of God by calling people to worship himself. By making himself equal with God. And it was right for God to condemn him. It was right for Jesus to die under this just sentence of rejection for his own crimes and his own guilt. But if God raised him from the dead, then God must not have rejected him. And the condemnation he suffered in his death must not have been for his crimes. So whose crimes did he suffer for? Now in this moment, I don't think Paul knows all the answers to that question, right? But he's asking that question because he's a a good first century Jew who knows his scriptures. And he knows that Deuteronomy says, cursed is he who dies hanging on a tree. And so he's, he had a good explanation for why Jesus died under a curse. Yeah, he deserved it. And now suddenly, Paul's going, hang on a second. Whose condemnation took Jesus to the cross? There's another bit of the story we have to press into here. Paul tells us when all this happened. What time of day was it? Verse 13. 
about noon. About noon. Now back in Acts chapter 9, you read a detail that's not repeated here. That when this blazing light encounters Paul, he goes blind. And he can't see until he walks into the city of Damascus and sits down with another Christian there named Ananias. And Ananias has been prepared by Jesus. Hey, this guy's going to come in here. He's going to be blind and heal him because I've chosen him to take this light everywhere there's darkness. What would it mean if somebody is struck blind at noon? Well, you know because you read it already. It's part of the prayer of confession. And your mind is like a steel trap and it misses no detail. (laughs) Isaiah 59, like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. There are a couple passages in the Old Testament like this that say blindness in the middle of the day is one of the curses God pours out on people who have forgotten him and turned away from him. And you hear Paul talk about turning, right? He says, um, everywhere I've gone, I've preached to people that they should repent and turn to God. And Jesus is the one who gave him that language, right? Jesus says, I've appointed you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me in this moment and what I will show you. I'm sending you to the nations to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. See, the thing is, as Paul walked on that road, he didn't know he was turned away from God. He thought he was turned toward God. And suddenly he struck blind in the middle of the day. And again, knowing the scriptures well, he's like, this is how God would curse somebody who really deserved it. I'm experiencing this curse that I deserve as one who has turned away from God, but I had no clue. I thought I was turned toward Him. I had no idea that I was running full speed away from Him in my zeal to persecute people. I was running to these other nations to wipe out the name of Jesus. So whose curse took Jesus to His death? Paul's only got one way to answer that question. You and I have got one way to answer the question. The question isn't, do I feel like I'm turned away from God? The question is, am I turned away from Him? And the reality is, if Jesus hasn't reached into your life and brought you out of that darkness, then you're turned away from Him. And you may be doing many good things that you think he would applaud and clap for and say, let it go. And have no clue that you're actually adding to the misery of this world. You're just running faster away from God. And at that moment, Jesus would say, you know what? I took that curse for you. I suffered that condemnation. I'm willing to forgive all of that right now. 
if you just turn to me. Just love me. Just let me be yours and you be mine forever. I'll forgive it all. Some of you heard this story earlier today because Tricia shared a bit of her story of how God's been at work in her life. Some of you have heard it before. See, John Wesley uh, founded the Methodist Church, and he believed that a pastor ought to be somewhere about three years and then move somewhere else. Because the reality is, okay, I'm not getting ready to do that, by the way. But the reality is, most preachers have only got like six stories. And so after you run out of the sermon illustrations, it's time to move on somewhere else. The only other option is you're just going to have to hear the same stories over and over and be happy about it. So you may have heard this before, but um, there was a moment when we were living in Scotland and our second child was on the way and um, Trisha experienced a miscarriage and a whole lot of pain and grief that comes after that. Those of you who've experienced that will understand. And some of you will think, how could, how could it be that big a deal? How, it's just a few cells. <laughs> no. When you're looking forward to the birth of that baby, it is, you know what it is. It's a life that God has created. And when life isn't there, you know what to call it. It's death. And grief comes with that. And Tricia was grieving as a loving mother would and should. That grief doesn't look the same in everybody's life. She was in the middle of that grief and had found a whole lot of comfort in reading John chapter 11 where Jesus shows up at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus has died and Jesus is weeping outside his friend's tomb. And Tricia read that verse. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible, right? Jesus wept. That's all it says. Jesus wept. And she read that and she thought, Jesus hates death too. He's with me in this. I'm not alone. And I came in after a day full of running after God's purposes. I'm, I'm getting a PhD. I'm studying the Bible all day long. I'm reading at a deep level. And she says to me, I read this verse today and it gave me such comfort. It says, Jesus hates death. And I looked at her and I said, it's not what it means. And Trisha has a gracious memory of this event. In her memory, I walked out of the room. No, I spent 10 more minutes explaining to her in gruesome detail Greek and German commentators and the history of the interpretation of this verse and why this lexical study means it doesn't mean that. I'm a pastor, right? I graduated from seminary. I'm supposed to be a shepherd of the flock taking care of people. totally turned away from the purpose God had for me at that moment, which was to comfort my grieving wife, to share her burdens. And I had no clue.
And Trisha will tell you, it was years before she read her Bible again. Because I spoke one sentence to her. We love Jesus because he has taken away our condemnation for all the little things we have done and said that we didn't know in the moment were that big a deal. Things that we thought were actually running toward God. But we were headed full speed away from him and his purposes. And Jesus says, that's why I suffered. That's why I bled. That's why I died. Another reason we love Jesus, he identifies with us in our weakness, in our suffering, in our sorrow. You hear what he said to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because I stand so close to my people that when they cry tears, I cry too. Why are you persecuting me? When you hit them, I feel the pain because I am as closely joined to them as a head is joined to the body. Paul writes about that in lots of his letters. Where do you learn it from? I'm as closely joined to them as a husband and a wife are at the most intimate moment of their union. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus, we love you. Because when we are weak and when we are hurting and when we are persecuted and when we look like we're on the losing side of all this and when our task of of sharing love of you around the whole globe looks so overwhelming we could never hope to succeed. And when our leaders are failures who could be running away from you and have no clue about it. You stand beside us and say, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. We love Jesus for that reason. Jesus should make, he's making us into a church that runs toward people who are hurting. We don't have to run away from people who are suffering. We don't have to run away from people who are broken. We don't have to run away from people who have done really bad stuff. Thinking it wasn't that bad while they were doing it. We get to run toward all kinds of people because Jesus is just right there with us. Why are you persecuting me? All right, one last reason we love Jesus. He looks at our most awful moments and he says, I see what you can become by my grace. So Paul, I see you. With your chest puffed out and your little note saying you have permission from the kings of the universe to persecute my people. I see you running off to foreign countries trying to force people to blaspheme my name. I see you worthy of being struck blind in the middle of the day as one who is under God's curse. I see all of that in you and guess what? I see that you can become a leader of my people, 
a trophy of my grace. I don't see somebody that I hate. I don't see somebody I've rejected. I don't see somebody I'm going to vomit out of my mouth. I see somebody I will wrap in my grace. I see what you can become. We love Jesus because he's shattered death and because he's taken on our condemnation and because he stands with us in our sorrows and our miseries and our afflictions and because he looks at us and he sees the very worst moment and he says, I think I can do something with that. Let's see, you're an aspiring pastor who has no intellectual intelligence, uh, no emotional intelligence. Can't even pick up on the fact that his wife is grieving. Had no clue that she was regularly calling her dad and saying, would you come get me and bring me home until 20 years after the fact. (laughs) Let's see, this clueless guy who in his arrogant pride would rather be known as a scholar than be a faithful husband at a moment when his wife needs him the most. This guy whose misdirected zeal for studying Scripture actually makes other people want to throw the Bible away for years. I think I can work with that. That's why we love Jesus. Right? That's why we're not afraid that we have weak leaders. That's why we're not afraid that we're a weak people who might be called to suffer many hardships because of our love for Him. That's why we're not even afraid to sit there and listen to Trisha tell the story in all its gory detail. Oh, the tears still come. But man, If you want it enough, you will even climb the hard parts of the mountain to see it. That's why we love Jesus. That's what he's like. That's who he is. That's who he's making us to be. People often ask, you know, how did you you know that you were called to come to Atlanta and, and be the pastor of this church? Pretty simple something we've been praying through for a while whether I should keep teaching or go back into the pastorate and we thought it'd be the pastorate didn't know where didn't know when we get this packet of stuff from this church called the town and page one says we're looking for a new senior pastor and we just about had to close the church down and sell the building because things got so bad and um, we've gone through a lot of hard stuff and will you come love us and we looked at each other and we said, Trisha, these might be our people. <laughs> this sounds like Jesus' people. Who know we don't have to pretend we've got it all together. We've made all the right choices. We've never done anything wrong. We don't have to pretend because we know that he will look at all of our stuff and say through my grace I see what you can become 
You can become a forgiven people. You can become a people whose doubts don't paralyze you. You can become a people who love me so much that you want others around the world to love me as well. You can become a people who are full of boldness even though your knees are trembling. You can become my people. That's why we love Jesus. Here's a picture of why we love Jesus. It's not a picture of a sunrise coming from top of a mountain. That's Trisha's picture. This is Jesus' picture. He gave us this picture. He said, as often as you want to do this, think about me. Here's the picture. Let's show you who I am. So we want to turn our attention now to receiving the Lord's Supper.